Hey, BA fam, this episode is sponsored by State Farm. Are you a small business owner looking for insurance that fits your needs and budget? Look no further than State Farm. State Farm agents are not just insurance providers. They're also small business owners who live and work right here in your community. They understand the unique challenges of running and protecting a small business. When it comes to small business insurance, State Farm knows what it takes. Create a plan that fits your needs and your budget. State Farm agents are ready to help you choose personalized policies that truly understand your business. Ensure your small business with a fellow small business owner. Talk to a State Farm agent today and get started on personalized small business insurance that fits your needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. All right. Hey, hey, BA fam. It's Mandy. I'm back with another very special guest with Brown Ambition today. We have the amazing, incredible, intelligent, charismatic, snowboarding, podcasting, writing, TED talking queen, Jodi Ann Bury. Jodi Ann is, as I just said, I don't even, there's not enough hyphens for Jodi Ann, but where I discovered Jodi Ann was through her incredible TED talk, which you can check out. We'll put a link in the show notes called The Myth of Bringing Your Full Authentic Self to Work. And through her work, Jodi Ann says she is on a mission to disrupt business as usual to achieve social change. And she's doing that in a couple of different ways, and especially in the way that she's approached her career. So we're going to talk to Jodi Ann about the TED Talk, about the myth of Black women bringing their full authentic self to work. Also her podcast, she has an amazing podcast called Black Cancer, which we're going to talk about where she explores the lives of people of color through their cancer journeys. I cannot wait to get into this conversation. So without further ado, hello, Jodi Ann. Thanks for joining VA. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much for having me. That was the best introduction ever. Oh, you're welcome. <laughs> I want women, and you know what? I used to do it off air on my own, but then I was like, I know it's uncomfortable to hear your own bio, but I also want, I'm like, here, listen to your bio, you know, listen to what you have done. So for those in the BA fam who may not be aware of your work, where did you get your start in your career and how did you end up on that TED Talk stage? Walk me through it. So in 1986, no. <laughs> <laughs> when two people love each other a lot. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> there are two ways to think about this, right? Normally I would say, oh, I'm a classic millennial and now I'm like on my sixth or seventh career at this point, right? And then the other side of the coin is, what happens to your career path when you graduate college with this promise of if you go to a fancy school, you get a fancy job and live a fancy life in 2008 in the Great Recession? <laughs> you know, what happens to your career path when you're just trying to make do? And then what also happens to your career path when you're a Black woman in predominantly white spaces trying to carve out space for how you work, right? Your authenticity, your values, your ambitions. And so I think on that second half of it between the recession and what is it like to navigate work as a Black woman, yeah, you'll see people changing jobs every <laughs> couple of years or changing industries every couple of years. And so I think that this path of the topic of my TED Talk authenticity, that I've kind of always been on that path in some shape or form, trying to understand who I am in these spaces, 
who I am as a person who was born in Jamaica, but moved to the U.S. within my first year of life, navigating those two cultures within Blackness, navigating what it's like to try to succeed and understand yourself in the context of predominantly white institutions and predominantly white workspaces. I've always been trying to understand what is truly my authentic core and what have I had to adapt as part of who I am in the process of code switching for you know now 20 plus years of my life, right? And so I think I've always kind of been building through my own experiences, personally, my professional path, and just my scholarship of kind of authenticity in these types of contentious environments um, or environments that have high stakes. Because who you are in your authenticity with your friendships isn't tied to your livelihood or your health insurance. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So there's a lot of, of risk in that space. So I think I've always been building content-wise. But as far as the uh, TED stage, and I know you talked about the podcast and to make that linkage here, uh, four years ago around this time, I had my surgery. I'm sure we'll get more into that. But as a part of going through that process of the pre-diagnosis depression that I was experiencing, the post-diagnosis depression I was experiencing, just like how traumatic that health crisis was when you're in a situation when you have to really grapple with your own mortality, there was a period of time that I couldn't see myself in the future. Like I really just like, all right, let's just make it through the end of today. Maybe we make it tomorrow, but I really could not see or imagine my life beyond like the immediate crisis that I was in. And so The moment that I had the thought that, oh, I'm going to apply for TEDx Seattle became the moment where I'm like, wait, are you seeing yourself in the future? Mm. (laughs) Do you you see a, a vision? Do you see a path for, you know, your life, what you can contribute? Um, and I think most critically, what I want to leave behind, what do I have to say that can outlast me and kind of reach way beyond I could in my little corner of the world. And so that's kind of how I got to the the TED stage, like both content-wise, life experience-wise, but also what makes you take that leap was this desire to leave something behind. It's interesting because you think about leaving things behind, but I don't think I really fully grappled with or thought of what being on the TED stage would create ahead for me, you know? What do you mean by that? The opportunities that came with it, the spotlight, the exposure? Yeah. Yeah. There are a lot of good things that come with that. I will say taking that TED stage during the pandemic, it was in 2020, has radically transformed the trajectory of my life, just objectively. But also- as I was trying to grapple with like who I was with this, like planning for my life, like why it was so critical for me to even start having the thought of Ted. Once you reach, and I'm, I'm sure you've experienced this, but I don't want to project, but you get this public sense of who you are, you know, who you are on social media, who you are on the Ted stage, what people think about you kind of through these mediated platforms, and then who you 
actually are. Let's talk about your health scare, not even a health scare, your traumatic oh, yeah, health event. You were, at, what happened? How old were you? Because I mean, this is, I, I can't even fathom being, you were probably in your mid 20s? No, I was 32 when I got diagnosed. 32? Early 30s. Yeah. Okay. So tell us, yeah. So, so talk about this, this, this experience and, and how did that sort of change your outlook on your career and everything? Yeah. So I think I've been struggling with uh, different health ailments, very benign. Like, oh, my elbow hurts, you know, like, oh, my wrist, like very, very tiny, tiny things for about three years. And so that took me in and out of different doctor's offices doing MRIs and x-rays and trying braces and exercises and creams. And the work of that is mentally exhausting, physically exhausting, and it's expensive. The first MRI that I had cost $400. And I have health insurance, okay? So it's like, it was just, it was a lot. And I was getting very tired of that, especially in a lot of these in and out of new doctor's offices being met with racism and um, different bias, which shows up as, I mean, are you really in a lot of pain? Um, I had one doctor tell me that a lot of what I was experiencing was a result of how to, having a sedentary lifestyle. And I'm like, well, how do you know that? Because I snowboard, I surf, I run, I lift weights. I was on a, a competitive dragon boating team. So he's looking at me like, oh, why didn't you tell me? Well, why did you assume looking at me, I don't know if it was color of my skin, shape of my body, that you assumed that I was sitting at home watching TV all day, which is also fine for people who do that, not trying to judge on people's lifestyles, right? And so just kind of deal with like the back and forth of that and the it was just draining. I, I cannot describe like the level of pain, but you're just like, it's whatever you push through, you go to work. I still did all my physical activities and I was hurting the whole time, which is a whole other thing of why do we normalize being in pain? Like that wasn't okay. Um, At some point I was describing all of this to my sister and she just interrupted me. And she's like, Joe, you are not Serena Williams. And I'm like, first of all, you don't have to come for me like that. I know that. I know that I'm not Serena Williams. Like, what is your point here? But the point she was making was that I'm just a regular active person. You know, Serena Williams is an elite athlete, right? Being a regular active person should not create the amount of ailments that I was having, right? That the fact that I was in pain was not normal or should be warranted for the types of activities that I was doing. Because again, it's not like I'm. I'm doing a lot, but I'm not an elite level, competitive, greatest in the world athlete. And so that kind of snapped to me that this is actually not okay. And so I kind of grit down, bared it. I gave myself four months to do every single test that they could do, unrelenting, right? That I would just give myself that amount to really do the investigative work, which is itself a massive privilege to be able to take the time off, to be able to have the health insurance or the finances to cover that, or, or even the mental capacity to invest in your health and your in yourself that way. And so I was like, I have all these things lined up for me. I'm just going to commit for the next couple of months to figure it out. Literally the next test that I did, 
which was an MRI of my cervical spine, found a massive tumor inside of my spinal cord. So the way it was explained to me was if I did nothing, I would be completely paralyzed from the neck down in a year. So I should have surgery and should have it within the week, which I pushed back because I was already scheduled to go snowboarding in uh, in Europe. So I was like, yeah, I'm going to Europe first and then I'll be back after Wait. that. <laughs> Wait. Wait. You were snowboarding, surfing, all this stuff, and you had a massive spinal tumor. Massive. Doing nothing would have made you paralyzed. And you said... Uh-huh, I hear you, but the flight is booked, and the hotel the is not booked. refundable, so BRB? <laughs> you didn't tell your mom, did you? No, are you kidding? My mom never would have let me. <laughs> I was going to say, mama never knew that you were getting on that flight with a spinal no. tour. <laughs> no, that was not information we were sharing with the public. <laughs> so- <laughs> oh, my God. So this is what's going through my head, okay. because he told me that the surgery itself carried the same risks, right? That the surgery itself mm. could paralyze me. If Was anyone with wrong. you when you were getting this news? No. <laughs> so, so I'm like, okay, if that's what I'm facing, if I'm facing potential complete paralysis from the neck down this week, I'm going to Europe, right? Because it could be the last time I was ever able to travel independently or to snowboard and to like have that experience. I didn't know what was ahead of me. And so I start bargaining. I'm like, can I push it back a month? And he's like, you have a ticking time bomb in your neck. I cannot make you better than you are from when you go into surgery. And so you could be compromising, you know, the best thing that you have going for you right now, which is the fact that you're healthy, right? Like you have a lot of mobility. He actually said to me that when he saw my scans, he didn't he didn't expect someone who could walk to come into his office. Like that's that's where we were. And so after the deliberation I was like I have to go to Europe, like I have to do this trip, like this could be my last opportunity for anything like this and so kind of went through that whole process. Had the surgery had a lot of rehab. Wait, so you go to Europe. So I go how to long Europe. was it? Had an amazing trip, I hope. It was phenomenal. Okay. <laughs> it was the best snowboarding of my life. <laughs> the powder was fresh. I don't know snowboarding technology, but I mean terminology, but there was snow and you boarded it. Okay. It, there was snow <laughs> and I boarded it. It was, yes. it was, it was great. I mean, I cried for a lot of it, just trying to like really take it in. Yeah. I, I didn't know. I didn't know. I didn't know if I could die. You know, surgeries yeah. are serious, right? I didn't know if I would be paralyzed. I didn't know anything. You know, my family and I, my sisters in the military, they planned that if I ended up severely like paralyzed, that she would adopt me as her child so I can get health insurance through the military and I wouldn't have to bankrupt my entire family for the rest of my life. You know, like... So there were a lot of what ifs ahead mm-hmm. and I just needed to focus on there now. I'm going to Europe. I'm going to have surgery. We'll see what happens after that. When I came back to work from that, and one thing I, you know, at the intersections with work here that I want to emphasize is that when you have a health crisis or someone in your household or someone that you take care of has a major health crisis, 
you have to decide what is likely an inevitability that you have to tell somebody at work. And not all workplaces know how to handle the real humanness <laughs> that comes with when a health crisis is in play. Whatever meetings I had, whatever deadlines I was working on did not matter as soon as I got that news. And thankfully, where I was working at the time, they're like, you do what you have to do. All the paperwork, all the PTO, all the disability, whatever, we will handle that on the back end. I did not have to worry about anything when it came to my job. In fact, after surgery, um, I was on disability leave for four months and they created a policy at my organization. This is a very small organization, nonprofit. So I don't even know if those large companies do this, but they created a policy where you could donate your PTO to someone else. And so in the creation of that policy, I was able to extend my leave an additional month because I was still, I mean, I couldn't even type after surgery, right? I had to relearn how to do everything that I could extend my leave and still get my full paycheck. It's, it was probably the greatest gift to not have to worry about my livelihood, how I was going to be paying for all these bills, um, what I would have to do work-wise. They took every single thing off my plate. Not everybody has that experience. Even when it's you who've been diagnosed with cancer or you have this, we're seeing this now with COVID, how sensitive companies are with giving space for that or understanding the role of caregivers. You know, my sister's job was very supportive of her because she was the one who was uh, primarily caring for me after I got discharged. And so I just wanted to emphasize that because if we talk about this in authenticity language, like this is genuinely what I was dealing with, what I was going through. And my work environment had the ability to hold that, to support me as I was trying to like fight for my life, right? Not all places have that. It's like, are you going to be well or are you going to work here? And we prefer that you work here regardless of what physical, mental, or emotional damage that does to you. I think, you know, just to land the plane here, but after going through that experience, it became very clear to me that difference between like how different my experience could have been if I was working somewhere else. And so that division of what is me and what is this organization, what is the environment, what is the individual and what is the institution, right? So that became super clear for me, but also, and I've talked to a lot of people on the podcast who go through this, but the capacity for bullshit is like, almost eliminated after you go through something like that. <laughs> and so my decision-making after that was very clear, right? I had a job that I loved. It was absolute nonsense to me and I quit, right? I wanted to kind of create my life in this way. I'm not hand-wringing and like, I don't know, what should I do? I don't should I do this? Maybe I can wait. No, wait for what? And so I still live my life that way with people who want to plan stuff for me like months in advance or, you know, I've had people ask me like, oh, what are you working on or what what goals do you have? And I, I tell them the same thing. I'm like, I don't plan my life more than two weeks out, right? Like I just, because you, you don't know. 
And I think that kind of trauma response also gives me a sense of urgency and a way where I don't negotiate with what keeps me healthy, what keeps me sane, and what keeps me happy. Like, that's non-negotiable. And so I always try to take care of myself first. <laughs> Clarity. Claire, I mean, what yes, a, I mean, it was yes. trauma, but it was like the the positive, the silver lining is that fast track to clarity, fast track to un, being unbothered. Oh, yeah. Being focused and understanding what's important. You know, when you say you get stripped down to like family, your health, you know, what's in front of you, nothing else matters. And I, I am... I don't want ever. Obviously, not everyone needs a spinal tumor. I, I swear to God, no, don't, don't let it be this. a spinal tumor. The <laughs> client that I was talking to this morning, when I tell you, and it's so serendipitous that I'm sitting with you now because I think back to my, I hate the word client, it makes it sound so transactional. But this woman who has been working with me for a couple of months now, and I looked at her and I was like, you realize, I need you to act more like your your house is on fire right now. Like you're having an emergency, we need to call 911. And the response is quit. <laughs> the response is it's time for you to walk away and take six months off. But and it was like she was waiting for something big enough, the cat the catastrophe, the 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 tumor on a scan, you know what I mean? And the fact that I and it's really difficult to kind of get people to a place where they can see their own health and their own well-being as that emergency. Like it actually is in jeopardy. Wow. All right, BA fam, let's take a quick break and we'll be right back with more of my illuminating conversation with Jody Ambury. This is Brown Ambition. Hey, BA fam, this episode is sponsored by State Farm. Are you a small business owner looking for insurance that fits your needs and budget? Look no further than State Farm. State Farm agents are not just insurance providers. They're also small business owners who live and work right here in your community. They understand the unique challenges of running and protecting a small business. When it comes to small business insurance, State Farm knows what it takes. Create a plan that fits your needs and your budget. State Farm agents are ready to help you choose personalized policies that truly understand your business. Ensure your small business with a fellow small business owner. Talk to a State Farm agent today and get started on personalized small business insurance that fits your needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Hey, BA fam, our fellow entrepreneurs and creatives, this message is sponsored by Squarespace. It is the ultimate toolkit for crafting your online presence. With Squarespace, it's really about more than just building a website. It's about shaping your online identity and making your mark. So say goodbye to checkout headaches with Squarespace's flexible payment options. From credit cards to Apple Pay, they've got you covered. And if you live in an eligible country, they offer buy now, pay later options with Afterpay and clear pay, which means that your customers have even more ways to purchase your products. So head over to squarespace.com and kickstart your journey with a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, don't forget to use our link squarespace.com slash brown ambition to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Just visit squarespace.com slash brown ambition to get your discount today. Remember, your online success story begins with Squarespace. So what are you waiting for? Let's build something extraordinary together. 
And now a word from our sponsors at Betterment. All right, BA fam, you know we work hard and we play hard, but when it comes to investing and having your money in the market, you want your money to be working for you. That's exactly what the Betterment Automated Investment and Savings app can help it do. Keeps your money out there working hard and kicking you know what. I love Betterment because it makes it easy for even a beginning investor to figure out how to put their money in the market and set it and forget it and be at peace with that because you know Betterment has got you covered with their automated investment and savings app. Their technology, it's going to give you advanced tools that are built to help you maximize those returns. All you got to do is visit Betterment.com to get started. Learn more about high yield cash accounts at Betterment.com. Investing involves risk, performance not guaranteed, cash reserve offered through Betterment LLC and Betterment Security. Securities. Betterment is not a bank. All right, BA fam, we are back. Let's dive right back into my conversation with Jody Ambury. The surgery, the physical rehabilitation, how long did all of that take? You said it was four months of recovery, five months relearning so how to five type? Of not of not working. Um, so okay. I was in the hospital for about a month, and that's like, can you walk? Can you write? Can you pick up a really small thing and put it to the other side of the table? Like that, that process was so, I don't want to say humbling because it makes it sound like it was a fun process. <laughs> as, no, humbling usually means it was hard as shit and you thought you were big tough shit before and now you oh, need to pick up a pencil. <laughs> and it's, it's kind of like, yeah. um, you know, like. It's kind of like that, like inspiration porn that we do with people who um, have disabilities. And so you can have someone who has a physical disability and they're just playing basketball. And then all the comments will be like, now you have no excuse to chase your dreams. (laughs) And I'm like, here's a kid who's just like playing basketball. No one asked you to project like your shit onto that situation. And so there's this sense of like, when you go through something really difficult, that if you get on the quote unquote other side of it, that the process itself was worth it, right? I would strongly prefer to not have had a spinal tumor or to be currently living with a spinal cord injury and all the disabilities and challenges and chronic pain that come from that. Like I would absolutely rather not have gone through that. The experience when I was in hospital was traumatizing and very, very isolating. And this is pre-COVID, right? So I had people visiting me every day, Um, but it's really challenging. And I remember this one instance where um, they took me to the bottom of a staircase and she was like, all right, you know, for PT today, we're going to walk up the stairs. And I was so irritated because I'm like, I'm at Memorial Sloan Kettering. Like this is like the creme de la creme of uh, cancer centers in the world. And what we're doing today is walking up these dingy back staircase. Like give me the the bells and whistles. Like I want cool equipment. And <laughs> so I'm all high and mighty off myself. Like this is what we're doing. Like we're walking upstairs and I stood at the bottom of the stairs and I just kind of looked up. I started crying because what's interesting about a spinal cord injury is that there's nothing physically wrong with my muscles, my legs, like my body functions. The problem is, is that the brain cannot get the information to the rest of the body. And so when people use paralysis as a figurative 
sense of speech. I'm like, you have no idea what that experience is like to be at the bottom of a staircase, looking at it, wanting to walk up, but your body is not moving. And having to constantly send those signals over and over and over again and hope that one of them gets through and your leg moves. Which I think actually sounds like what you're talking about with your client, where you're like, you keep sending these signals like, girl, quit your job, right? Like, do something different, take some time off. And the signals are not getting through. And so you, you keep sending them and hoping that like you can, you can take the step. So I think I, I understand why people use it you know, figuratively, but the actual work of kind of navigating through partial paralysis is, I guess it's humbling. (laughs) I'll never, I can't even fathom. I can't even fathom what that, but thank you for, thank you for even taking the time to try to express that for those of us who haven't felt that way. Man, man. (laughs) I just wish that people wouldn't have to go through stuff like that to get that kick in the butt to just create the life that you want to create. Life is so fragile. Mm -hmm. And if you can't walk away even from the pandemic from that, like, like, I don't, I don't want people to have to go through a crisis to start investing in themselves and to spend their intellectual energy, you know, as we talk about our professional lives, through something that like really matters to you, but also is getting you kind of what you want out of that realm of your life. And so I'm not saying that everyone has to do meaningful work. You can make widgets. If those widgets give you, you know, generational financial safety <laughs> and that's important to you and that's your goal, then great. Right. But Are you destroying yourself regardless of what path you choose in that process? Like, are you unhappy? And so I just want people to tap into like, what actually matters to you? What's actually important to you? How can you achieve your goals without eroding yourself? I could not agree more. I think some people do need the, 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 big seismic shock of an event. I'm with you. I'm like, if the pandemic didn't do it, then what the heck will I mean, but some people are really hard headed and and not, you know, they're gonna people will learn on their own time. But I do feel like younger generations, and I will include ourselves in that I'm a millennial. And I think that we don't want to we understand the urgency of protecting happiness and well being. And what I have feel like the shift that I'm seeing is we are collectively using our voices and and even people like you going on stages and talking about the importance of us telling that and and holding employers accountable and companies and businesses accountable for breaking down their problems, breaking down their systems and processes to better accommodate our new perspectives and our, you know, what we value the most, which, you know, which is love, family, wellness, you know, why is it not okay for me as a mom, a black woman, a mom, a working person, I I I I even I'll I'll put myself out there and say that I judged my own mom when she would tell me I just want to be a mom. I don't want to work. I just want to be a mom. I had to work cuz I had four kids and you know, was by myself. And I'd be like, you just wanted to be a mom. But like <laughs> that isn't <laughs> which is <laughs> a <why>? huge job. <laughs> 
it's a huge job. And it's also, but I felt it for me, for, you know, I'm glad I got over this really quickly, but it was like, I had this perception that like, there was a glamorization of work and working and being a part of a, you know, being a part of a company and doing the nine to five and that, you know, the traditional image of the working woman through the eighties. I think we were as eighties, I'm an eighties baby. And you kind of see the women and you have to like act like the man and, and be aggressive with your career, but at what cost? So we're almost like we're, we're the next level of that. It's yes, we can have careers, but we can have it on our own terms. And we don't have to sacrifice our financial well-being to have a job. We shouldn't have to sac- sacrifice our financial well-being to have work that is meaningful, that treats us well, takes care of us, and lets us clock out when we want to clock out and spend time with the kids and have time for ourselves and all that beauty. So for you and I, the 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 way that we got there was being our own boss. And I want to talk to you about that transition for a lot of women. And it is, you know, I'm so happy that they can find places in traditional, you know, nine to five work where they are able to do that, feel safe, be well paid. It exists, y'all who are listening. It exists. I help it people does all exist. the time. <laughs> it does. But in this particular chapter in, in your life, you are on your own. So how has that been, that transition into independence? And how's it how's it going? It's going great. I mean, to put it in context, like, if I didn't want to do anything revenue gener- generating for the rest of this calendar year, I do not have to do that. And mm. I think that's what Ali Wong, some extent of to what Ali Wong refers to is like, fuck you money, where you're just like, I'm good. Like, I don't have to do yeah. anything. Like, <laughs> <laughs> But I didn't expect this for myself um, at all. And I feel like I had a um, non-traditional approach even to entrepreneurship. I've tried the like forecasting and here are all my marketing strategies and this and that, but that is, it's so not me. Um, and so not what I had the energy for where I'm just like, I just want to do what I want to do. And so I call it this, if someone steals this, I'll be so pissed. Um, maybe I'm not going to give it a name because it is a cool name, but the strategy is basically the strategy is, is to work as authentically as I can and as publicly as I can. And so when I started in 2020, I wanted to have like conversations about microaggressions in the workplace. But again, I wanted the audience to be us. And so it was like a workshop for women of color. We're going to talk about microaggressions, um, kind of what the experiences are. And I was just trying to figure out like what in that topic I actually cared about. And so I just started doing it. It wasn't perfect, right? It was probably at 70%, which is my rule. Like if it's 70% good, if it's 70% there, it's enough, right? Which itself, I think also for Black women is like, wait, is it not perfect? (laughs) Yeah. No, but I love that. Done is better than perfect sometimes. Exactly. And I was like, I'm going to learn publicly, which we don't often feel like we get a chance to do and people create situations where we don't get a chance to do that, right? So I was like, I'm going to learn publicly. This is a low stakes situation. I'm just going to just put this stuff up on the internet. I had no audience really before this and just started doing them very regularly. And from that, built this huge audience. Like I would have 3000 people on a waiting list. And so kind of building off of that and kind of crafting like, okay, what in this do I care about? What else do I care about? 
um, I started the Black Cancer Podcast, which is not revenue generating at all and important for me to kind of keep that as a passion project. And I just started kind of doing. What I didn't expect is that people who showed up in these places, in my workshops, workplaces, right? (laughs) I didn't plan this. And so they're like, hey, can you do this for us? And can you do that? And I'm like, wait, what? And so in the beginning of that, I had no idea what to charge. I was just kind of, I don't know, making things up, talking to people. I would never charge something now, somebody now, what I accepted two years ago. <laughs> like, I'm like, as you shouldn't. Exactly. So, as you shouldn't. The price has like, gone up and it's the, gone up and listen, that's okay. Yesterday's price is not today's price. I'm telling Amen. you. <laughs> Period. So, paragraph. Say less. And so that just really built up. And then some writing opportunities came up and the TED Talk went out. And those two things really took off which created the audience, which generated the work, and which has led to other opportunities that will be public soon that I can't talk about yet. But I just allowed myself to really just stay focused on the things that I cared about and the things I had energy for. Now, what that came with is saying no to clients who would not pay me what I asked for. And this is when I was not even charging that much saying no to people that I felt bad vibes from. Like there's a CEO of a big company here in Seattle who made a comment about my hair in a Zoom meeting. And I'm like, yeah, this is not not the match. And said no to thousands of dollars um, because I didn't like the interaction. And so I always try to center on what's giving me energy, what's taking away my energy. And as much as I can, Um, make decisions about what's giving me energy. What's also critical to this too is that I never wanted to make decisions based on money because if it was about the money, then I could go work for somebody else, right? The whole point of working for myself was to give, you know, myself the the level of agency to structure my day um, the way I wanted and to do the types of things that I could get excited about and to work with the type of people that I want to work with. And so I love saying no to people and I've turned down a lot of people and that's been an important part of my process. So the last thing I'll say too is that because I work in what I'll call like such a self-centering way, I have never pitched work to anybody. I've not done a proposal. I've not done like, you know, the RFPs. I've not emailed people cold with a deck or anything. I work publicly and I make sure that my website is up to date and people know how to find me. And so all of my business is inbound. And I love that because it changes the power dynamic. I'm actually deciding whether I want to work with you instead of the other way around. And that level of of power is is a level that I've, of power I've never experienced in my career before. And you know, spinal cord injury aside, I've never been as mentally or physically healthy than I've ever been. And that that's the point, you know. So you can snowboard whenever the damn hell you want to snowboard. Every Wednesday. I Every to- Wednesday. <laughs> Where do you I, live? <laughs> I, I live in I live in Seattle. I snowboard at Stevens for people who know it's like an hour and a half away from here. Okay. I snowboard on Wednesdays, so there are no crowds. I do not take business meetings before 1 p.m. 
with rare exception, like this podcast. <laughs> I was going to um, say, what time is it over there? <laughs> I know, girl. When your team was like nine o'clock, I was like, nine o'clock? I'm still doing yoga at nine. <laughs> <laughs> I have a, a three-hour morning I'm routine. walking in the park at nine, so I appreciate you. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for the time. Yeah, so I have a three-hour morning routine. And, you know, most of my work day yesterday, I ran 11 miles, right? So that's the type of lifestyle that I want. And to be able to have that type of lifestyle and also be financially healthy is something that I did not think would be possible, it's a thing that you hope for, but I mean, I'm I'm very happy right now. <laughs> I am so happy talking to you because for anyone who's listening, I'm I'm just gonna sum up a couple of things that I'm hearing. I'm hearing one, it is possible. Like you are. This is when we that we like we glamorize black women grinding and hustle culture and all that, but we need more examples, and I'm so glad that you share yourself with us because we need more examples of this more women doing whatever the hell they want to do and showing that yeah my bills are paid and I'm doing what I want to do so now what <laughs> and on top of that what you said that I I, I work so hard I have a, a group coaching program and one of the my favorite things to talk about is one of the scariest for the women that I work with which is your brand it is you and it's using your voice and standing in your point of view and speaking and sharing and showing people what it is that you're doing and not being afraid of that, you know, not being afraid of of creating your own platform and sharing and how much power there is when you tell people, as soon as I started actually opening my mouth a lot more and sharing my opinions, your audience will find you and those opportunities, baby. When you said all those inbound requests, yes, that can that will happen in your career. You know, even if you're nine to five, it'll be recruiters reaching out. It'll be hiring managers, you know. If they if you don't open the front door and, you know, say, come on in, how are they going to know that you're there? And I think that's such a I'm I'm so happy and to hear that, to hear you say that there is power in you being more public, you know with the work that you're doing and not waiting around for the permission. Eventbrite is free. Eventbrite right? is, that's literally what I said. <laughs> I said Eventbrite is free. I have a computer and I have Zoom. So let's make it happen. And just starting to build like super small. Like I started this newsletter and the I had four people on the list, like four. And I knew all of them, all right? <laughs> And myself Sister, included. Mom, dad, yourself. Yeah, got it. <laughs> myself included, right? So really three other people. And I just, I'm just going to keep at it. I'm going to keep at it. And now there's like over 13,000 people on this list, right? And so what was important for me is I set process goals. I do not set outcome goals. And the times where I have tried to set outcome goals is when I've stopped doing the work. And so what I mean by that is this, when I had the podcast, my goal was not how many listeners I would get, you know, what type of outlets would talk about the podcast, like none of those things, right? Those are all kind of like outcome goals. My one marker of success for Black Cancer when I started was if I said that the season starts on April 1st, did you start the season on April 1st? If I set the schedule that I would release an episode every single Monday. Did I release an episode every single Monday? That's it. And if that happened, 
that was successful. Amen, sister. Consistency. From one podcast to, to, to another, Brown Ambition, the best thing Tiff and I did from the jump was, and we will publish on, at the time it was Tuesday, and we met and we did our tape. It was about scheduling the time and making it a consistent habit. And then your audience begins to trust you and you show up for them. And it may take you years and, you know, and all that. But as a personal trainer, I feel like you probably understand better than anyone that a lot of people know the steps it takes, but they won't. It's it's the, the differentiating factor between who actually takes those steps and who yes. shows up. Who yes. shows up and when it's not convenient. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. very different. This is I I learned this from personal training and also with my public health degree, right? And I will and this is hard to say as someone who speaks and writes. I think there is an asterisk there, but foundationally, information is not enough to change your behavior. It's not. Information is not enough to change your behavior. And so you can know anything, right? Mind you, I'm trying to lose all my post-surgery weight right now. It has nothing to do with how I feel about how I look and all about trying to like feel good about like my body in a like a very grounded way. So not about aesthetics for, for the folks out there. Like, why are you trying to lose weight, girl? You look great. I know I look great, but this is what I'm working on, right? So I'm trying to lose all my post-surgery weight. And the thing that I kept going back to is like, you have a degree in this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You have, you have done this for other people. You've done this for yourself. And you have studied this. I have all the information that I need to meet my fitness goals. And I've been trying to meet these fitness goals for four years, right? And so what supports you in taking the action, right? Hey, you don't weigh the same that you did two years ago, so you need new clothes. Stop suffocating yourself with things that do not fit that make you feel uncomfortable so then you don't do the physical activity, right? Um, Sign up for the gym membership. Go to the park. Here are all the actual environmental things that supports me in making this happen. What accountability can I set up? And so having the information is never enough. It's about what structures you have in place. And we see this with our workplaces. Most of our workplaces, if you look on our websites, on the websites of where you work, knows that diversity, equity, inclusion is important. They know that paying women the same as men is important. They understand that diversity is key. They have all the information, right? Do they act on said information? Yeah. No. Right? Nope. No. No. Nope. They, they tell as you. As soon like, as they leave the call or leave the room. Exactly. They get it up. Oh, yeah, that's important. What's for lunch? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I know you talked to Rachik about imposter syndrome, right? Like all our workplaces talk about imposter syndrome and it's holding women back and blah, blah, blah. Cool. But have you changed your work culture to not trigger my imposter syndrome? Are you still interrupting me, Bob, every time I have something to say? (laughs) You know, are you still asking me to take the notes when I'm actually there to leave the meeting? So you say that you know this thing. You say that you value this thing. You say that this thing is important. But what's actually happening infrastructurally 
to make those changes come to bear. Um, and I think we could see that in entrepreneurship as well. There's the things that you want to do and the things that you do. So what are you doing? I'm so glad that you pointed that out. And I wish we had more time to talk more from one entrepreneur to another. I see you on so many levels. And thank goodness that you're healthy and that you made it through the other side of that. I'm so grateful. And I'm grateful to you for taking that experience and not letting it, if anything, letting it turbocharge you forward because your work is so important. And I'm so honored that you have shared your time and your voice at this early, early Friday hour with our audience. I know that they will feel seen in your work. So if you guys want to learn more about Jodi Ann, check out her website. We'll have a link to the notes. Check her out on IG. Jodi Ann, where's, is the website the best place for people to to find out more about your work? That's JodiAnnBeery.com. Yep. JodiAnnBeery.com and JodiAnnBeery on Instagram. JodiAnn underscore B on Twitter, but I never do anything on Twitter. So that won't be a exciting place for you. Same Z's. Are you doing any uh, TikTok dances? No. <laughs> no, I <laughs> asked my niece to teach me a TikTok dance and she looked at me and was like, Auntie, no. <laughs> <laughs> you know what's great about it? You don't have to learn how to do dances. Just be yourself. People, they love authenticity. Authenticity wins. Well, I will say this. I, I heard this uh, for like to support entrepreneurs, like pick two social media platforms and like double down and so i'm on instagram and linkedin are my primary one so y'all can find me there <laughs> i love that yes just focus just find just pick one and, and focus people are always like it's so overwhelming well don't let it be don't pick let it one be. and focus well yeah. i can't wait to find out more i feel like you've got some exciting things whenever someone teases something that's going to happen i'm like is it shondaland is it you know are you going to have a, a netflix series my head goes to shonda i don't know why i just Listen, feel like shonda's out there from your lips to the universe. <laughs> yeah. Shonda, whatever. Netflix. <laughs> Listen, if Shonda listened to BA, that would be, I know I'd made it then. Stacey Abrams was a good way to start the year. Now I just got to keep going. And you are an incredible, just woman, person, human being. Thank you so much, Jody Ann, for joining Brown Ambition. We will have links to all of your incredible work in the show notes. And I cannot wait to see where you go next, my friend, my new friend in my head. Thank you. No, the friendship, the friendship is here. You heard it here first. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.